Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today, we're talking about two new movies available to stream right now. One of them is the semi-autobiographical Pete Davison vehicle, The King of Staten Island, directed by Judd Apatow. And the other is Shirley, Josephine Decker's gothic psychodrama starring Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson. We'll also share a couple of personal recommendations on some smaller movies you can watch from home today. Welcome to Film Club. So, Katie, we're at the end of June now, uh, which is normally a time in which we would have seen um, probably a Pixar movie, a couple superhero films. Maybe a Vin Diesel vehicle. (laughs) Maybe a Vin Diesel vehicle. Or The Rock, one of the two. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But we have not seen any of those, obviously, because of of the pandemic and because the the summer movie season has essentially been canceled. Um, So a lot of what we've seen instead have been smaller films. Um, I will say, though, that there is at least one movie that we would... We would, we would probably be talking about today or maybe earlier that t- today uh, earlier than today if if uh, we were able to go to the movies and if, if uh, under normal circumstances and that is the new Judd Apatow film the mm-hmm. King of Staten Island yeah this was going to be the opening night film at South by Southwest so I would have seen this several months ago right and um, this also I mean I think this also would have had a big theatrical rollout normally I mean it was, yeah, it was scheduled, so. scheduled for theaters. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of decided that um, rather than I mean a lot of uh, a lot of distributors and a lot of studios have decided to push to push their projects back. This one was uh, they decided with this one that um, people can watch this movie from home, and uh, I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> yeah, I uh, think so. You know, it's a pretty low key dramedy. There's not a ton of you know like big spectacular set pieces or anything right. like that. So right. <laughs> it's okay for watching at home. <laughs> yep. So this is the new film from Judd Apatow. Uh, Apatow has sort of set the tone for the last 15 years of American comedy. Um, he uh, obviously started in television. Um, uh, one of the creators of Freaks and Geeks. Mm-hmm. Great um, show. Yep, yeah, great show. Agreed. Um, and uh, since then has spent... Uh, I mean, he's not he's not an enormously prolific filmmaker, honestly. He's directed a few features. He's He's been very prolific as a producer. And yeah. uh, one of his... Uh, sort of one of his signatures as a filmmaker and as a producer is developing projects for comedians um uh, occasionally small screen comedians in fact uh, sort of uh fashioning for them these these star vehicles essentially yeah um, uh for better or for worse he's pretty much responsible for launching lena dunham's career with girls that's right um and he you know i mean the, the his first feature the 40 year old virgin was uh was steve carell's sort of uh coronation mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. as a movie star um he did the same for he did the same for seth rogan in knocked up jonah hill too i think he wasn't much of a presence before super bad that's right yep jonah hill he basically uh, as a producer uh right yes launched yes. his career um and uh then you have uh, amy schumer in, in Trainwreck. that was mm-hmm. apatow's last film and he's kind of doing the same thing here with the king of staten island and he's sort of building this star vehicle for pete davison right um, who you know pete davison's been on snl for a few years now and you know it kind of it's interesting because with the line between film and TV not being as uh, firm as it used to be, one could argue that Pete Davidson's been pretty much launched, you know, but this is, this is, I think, uh, as a film vehicle, you know, mm-hmm. it depends on whether you think that's a level up, which is a little murkier than it used to be. 
For sure. Um, and I, I think the film is interesting to look at uh, in comparison to something like Trainwreck, which mm-hmm. um, I think that one, one, one skill that Apatow has, I think, as a filmmaker is that he doesn't just build these star vehicles for, uh, for these up-and-coming comedians. He, uh, he kind of caters them to their particular comic style. Yeah, that's ways. true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I will say the, the, the thing that I liked maybe most about The King of Staten Island is that it does feel like it's been it's been specifically catered to to Pete Davidson's particular comic energy and style. Mm-hmm. Um, D- Davidson on SNL, uh, sort sort of one of his qualities uh, as as an SNL player and as a comedian is that he doesn't he he's not a chameleon. This is not the guy that you bring on because you want because he can do a great impersonation of a celebrity. He's not somebody he does not disappear into his characters. Davidson's thing has kind of always been this is who I am and I'm this kind of I'm going to expose myself as this kind of raw nerve. Uh, a lot of his jokes are sort of at his own expense. He's very self-deprecating about his uh, struggles with with uh, mental health issues. Um, and uh, SNL, I, I feel like, has not always known entirely what to do with him. It's it, it's like Lorne Michaels looked at him and knew that he had something in Davidson, but he didn't mm-hmm. know exactly what to do with him on the show. And a lot of the time on the show, Davidson is just kind of being Pete Davidson. Yeah, he shows up on Weekend Update a lot in that you yeah. know, sort of... Uh, way in that realm that you're talking about exactly and he's kind of playing he's just sort of playing himself in, in a manner of speaking um, and I feel like that's kind of the case in King Staten Island as well mm-hmm. which um, I will say that uh, the movie is uh, rather explicitly semi-autobiographical um, Davison did in fact grow up on Staten Island he uh, the movie the movie casts him as uh, his character's name is Scott Carlin and uh, he's a young aspiring tattoo artist, which I don't think that's true to Davison's own. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> Davison. Uh, I'm not sure if Davison ever. Um, I, he's got he, tattoos. <laughs> he does have tattoos, so maybe he did. Maybe he did at one point in his life want to be a tattoo artist. Um, maybe, but uh, there's no there's no hint, even a hint that this particular version of Davison, this sort of um, this. I, I wanted to call it a caricature of himself, but it's not even really that. It's mostly just that he's he's just playing himself on screen. Um, I think I think it is a caricature, I or may, maybe not even a caricature, but it is a type of character because um, earlier this year, uh, this movie kind of has some parallels to a TV series, uh, Aquafina's Nora from Queens, which came out earlier this year, in which yeah. Aquafina plays a character who's quite similar to Scott in this movie, only. Um, female and Asian and living in Queens rather than Staten Island, but it's Got the it. same kind of like stoner whose parents desperately want her to move out. <laughs> right, right. I mean, he's honestly, I mean, the, the role is very catered to Davison's particular comedic style. I wrote down while watching it that there's something there's something both laid back and stressed out about, about Pete Davison at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly how he manages to capture those two conflicting qualities at the same time, but he does. Uh, it's as very a millennial. Performer. I feel like that is the yeah. constant state of the millennial generation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think that we're going to look back. I, I have a, I, I don't want to sell Davison short. Maybe he'll have a long and, and um, successful career. Maybe he'll go on to do many ambitious things from here but there is a part of me that feels like we're going to look back on this particular era and pete davidson is going to be one of those like like if there's like i i, I love the 2010s on vh1 or something mm-hmm. there's going to be an episode on pete davidson you know <laughs> yeah, like, totally. he is incredibly 
2020, you know? Oh, totally. <laughs> or maybe, uh, well, you know, I don't mean this as a diss, but, you know, maybe even very 2018, because that's when he was dating yeah. Ariana Grande. Pete, I mean, not different from this character. Pete Davidson's kind of a tabloid staple, actually, because he has it's a lot true. of girlfriends who you're like, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He dates a lot of, of, of beautiful, famous women. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of imagines what if Davidson, what if Davidson didn't find comedy and what if at 24 years old he was still living at home with his mother, mm-hmm. who in this case is played by Marissa Tomei, uh, and didn't really have a lot of direction in his life. He was, uh, I mean, uh-huh. he, he wants to be a tattoo artist, but he's not great at it. <laughs> The character is is kind of sloppy as a tattoo artist. And there's kind one of. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> as somebody in the film says at one point, it's a medical procedure, and with medical <laughs> procedures, you can't really be sloppy. So um, yeah. Um. Well, yeah. In this movie, there are scenes where he's just got his tattoo gun out, and he's just tattooing people at the park, at the pool, wherever. And it's, <laughs> he's wearing gloves. I guess there's that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, so there are elements of Davidson's real life in this. I mean, uh, Davidson's father um, died in, in at, on 9-11. Um, he was a firefighter. Uh, in this film, He the, the Davidson character has a dead father who was a firefighter. They take out the 9-11 element. Um, but uh, that that aspect of his biography is in the film. Um, I think there's a, he has Crohn's disease, which I, I believe Davidson also has. There, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little elements of Davidson's actual why you, biography why do you think they took the 9-11 part out because is it like what it, is it one of those things where it's real life but if you put it in a movie it would seem too dramatic maybe i think that that yeah i think that's pretty shrewd i think that probably is the reason is that that would be too big of a thing uh-huh. almost for, for this movie because this movie's stakes are very small in some ways and mm-hmm. I, I think this movie wants to see scott as somebody who is a very small and in some ways ordinary person. I see. Um, yeah. And then 9-11 is definitely an extraordinary circumstance. Right? It certainly is. And giving him that backstory. But I, I think you're right that like people might watch this and go, really? His dad died in 9-11? You know? Um, they'd be like, it's a little on the nose. You know? Mm-hmm. Even, even, even though, though that's, that's what really what happened. happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That happens <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> For sure. Um, it could also have something to do with the fact, I mean, because there are a number of other characters in this film who are firefighters. Mm. Um, we won't give you a, listeners, we won't give you a full uh, overview of the plot necessarily. Not that this is a movie that's possible to spoil, really. But uh, it would probably just bore you. Um, but uh, there are there are other characters in this film who are firefighters. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them are in Staten Island. I wonder if there's some sort of, um, you know, the... Uh, I wonder if there's some sort of aspect where it's like his father, his actual father probably worked in Manhattan. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, you're right that it is a very low key kind of movie. And another thing Judd Apatow is kind of known for, and I would even say notorious for is very long films. This film is two hours, 15, which I think is, I think it's a little too long, man. I would agree with you. Um, I do think that in general, that complaint, I guess, bugs me a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we have tons of tight ninety-minute comedies, studio comedies. Um, uh, the notion that self-indulgence is fundamentally a bad thing, um, I think it can be a kind of neutral quality. To be mm-hmm. honest, um, I think it kind of depends on what you use, how you use that extended running time. Right. Um, I actually think Apato, one of Apato's more underrated films, is Funny People. Um, which uh, that is a very long film too. I think that that's over over the two-hour mark. 
Um, and that movie, I think, uses its extended runtime in in smart ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, both in terms uh, and, and often in funny ways too. Actually, I mean, I think that some of the some of the the subplots and the sort of extraneous bits in that in that film, I wouldn't necessarily want to lose them. And I kind of feel that way about about his work in general. Is that um, I understand that not everything in his movies always feels strictly necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't mind a little bagginess when it when it when it's providing. When it's making something a little bit more distinctive, because sometimes when you take something that's longer and you cut it down, what you're really doing, what you're really saying is, uh, as a producer maybe, is let's shave off all the sort of all the sort of more distinctive, interesting things, and and what you're kind of left behind, what what you're left with sort of is this more generic, highly structured thing, you know? Um, yeah. A, a, a comedy that's very. Uh, Comedy that's very like on point at all times. Yeah, I mean, it. I I suppose it really is just an aesthetic preference there. You know, I like more tightly edited scripted comedy. You know, I like comedy that moves a little more than Judd Apatow no. movies. I'm not gonna lie, he's not my favorite director, and there's a no. couple of his movies that I actively dislike. This one, to me, I I think with Judd Apatow and and the question of extended running time, it comes down to how engaged you are by the characters, you know, because like this movie is is very character based. You know, a lot of it is vignettes. There's not a ton of plot, like you said. And I this one was I didn't hate it, but. I thought it was such an odd mix of elements and tones. And the thing to me that made it seem so odd was the character of Scott. You know, like you said, they they, they sort of talk about like, you know, the, the mental illness issues and things like that. But at the same time, a lot of the characters' actions and motivations are very juvenile in a way that actually reminded me of 90s Adam Sandler movies. Like, he reminded me of the character of Billy Madison in a lot of ways. And I and and I just found that such an odd fit with this, um, you know, low-key, shaggy, dramedy format. Interesting. I don't know if I agree with the Sandler comparison. I mean, I will say that I, I think that Sandler... All of these, all of these people. I mean, even Apatow and Sandler probably grew in to some in, in some respects out of the same generational comic gene pool, you know. Right. Um, and a lot of what I mean, Apatow's movies are all to, to one extent or another. Apatow's movies are all about immature people belatedly growing up. Sure. Um, basically, and, and all, this one's no exception, right? This yeah. one is no exception to that. Yeah. Um, I think that in some respects, Sandler has done that too in his career. So there is there is some overlap here. I feel like Scott, as as Davison plays him, is a little bit more real than someone like Billy Madison or Happy uh-huh. Gilmore. I think that he's part of that. I think is that he is steeped in Davison's own biography and in Davison's particular comic energy. Um, he to, he felt to me like a slightly more real character. I don't think this is quite as broad as an Adam Sandler comedy. Um, it might although, just be a question of approach, honestly. Like yeah. if they had played this movie differently, it would have come off kind of like Billy Madison. I think. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, this is more than anything Epito's ever made. I feel like this one is straddling the comedy drama line, mm-hmm. um, oh, and yeah, it's also—I sure. um, I, I have to say—I quite enjoyed uh, a lot of the first half of the film, which is just kind of following this character around as he fucks up and and hangs out with his friends. I, I'll confess that I found a lot of the scenes with him and his deadbeat Staten Island buddies to be pretty funny. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think Apatow is pretty good. They're, they're, like his 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 buddies in this are just kind of a variation on the group of stoner idiots that tend to populate the margins of any Apatow movie. I mean, they're just. Uh, they're like a version of the of the group of friends in Knocked Up or Forty Year Old Virgin, you know. There's just like a new variation on that. Um, I feel like Apatow always excels at that kind of uh, a sort of baggy conversational hangout movie comedy, you know. Um, That's so interesting because I preferred the second half of the movie when he uh, is hanging out with the firefighters. I like the characters of the firefighters uh, quite a bit. Bill Burr, uh, he's playing um, one of the, you know, lead supporting characters. He's a firefighter who meets uh, David Scott's mom and starts uh, dating her. And uh, Scott has a lot of problems with this and uh, eventually ends up staying at the firehouse uh, with uh, Bill, Bur- Bill Burr's character and Steve Buscemi is there. He's the fire chief. And I and I preferred those scenes, I think, because that's when they really start to dig in to why Scott, you know, just like the background of how he ended up to this point. And a lot of it is like his issues with his dad dying. And I think that's why I preferred that part of the film. Interesting, because I felt like that portion of the movie was too easy, in a sense. It's like the movie sets up an equation that, you know, Scott is kind of a fucked up guy. He has his issues. He can't accept this this relationship that his mother has. He can't accept responsibility for himself. Uh, He has this relationship with one of his friends, um, uh, played by Belle Polly, I think in a very pretty good performance, actually. Um, And... uh, but he can't commit to her. He's he's he refuses to call it a relationship. Basically, they're sleeping together, but he doesn't want to take it to the next step. So it ha- it presents all these problems he basically has, and then I feel like the second half of the movie just kind of solves them in a way that felt to me kind of easy. Um, it, when he when he starts crashing at the firehouse, it kind of turns into a little bit of a of a cozy sitcom. I actually think like he's it's like I could see this as like a primetime CBS thing, like you know like. <laughs> like jerk off kid like is taken in by a mm-hmm. by a by like a firehouse of, of manly but good-hearted guys and they like teach him life's lessons and i just felt like the movie the movie at that point was betraying uh some of the kind of the kind of shit kicking energy of the first half and well uh, see i think it comes down to how you feel about that character and that shit kicking energy because i'm not gonna lie i found it really frustrating i didn't much i i mean this is no knock on pete davidson as a person but i didn't really like scott i felt like he was just no like Listen, his sister and his mother have, you know, are ha, have dealt with their issues and moved on. And he's 24 years old and still acting like he's seven. And I'm sorry, but like men like that are maybe they're fun to hang out with other guys. But for women, they are nothing but frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So uh, but, like, but it is so wrong to dislike a character in a comedy. Uh, well, if the whole thing is hanging out with that character, then yeah, it doesn't really make for a fun watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't mean... know if I, I don't I don't know if I like him either, necessarily. Um, I find, I, I, I find Davidson's particular, uh, particular shtick to be, uh, I don't know, if not refreshing, at least interesting. Um, uh, I sort of, I, I, I think that, again, I think he's incapable of being anyone but himself on screen. And I think that the movie is built, is sort of built around him in that respect. And that, I mean, there, sometimes there aren't even necessarily punchlines. And that, to me, that 
feels a lot like that that feels very catered to Davison too where it's uh it's sort of he's just like he's presenting himself and that's that's what the movie is in a sense yeah i mean yeah the self-depreciating aspect does add another layer to it i I will say that but you know i mean in a character-based comedy a lot of it depends on how you feel about the character i think yeah uh i the other thing about it though is that i think that um the movie the movie flirts with taking the character's mental health issues seriously I mean, the film mm-hmm. opens, the very first shot of the movie is Scott driving, uh, and he's on the highway, and he closes his eyes for a good 10 seconds while on the highway. And the movie is not afraid, at least in, in, in its first maybe half hour or so, to suggest that he might have some some suicidal ideation. Um, but then the film does almost nothing with that. Uh, yeah, at- I found that frustrating, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we don't need a version of this that devolves into a, you know, uh, devolves into a complete study. I mean, it's it's a comedy. It's it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a film of like dissecting his particular issues or or uh, very seriously dealing with his mental health issues. But I will say that that there's there's a version of this I think that would deal with them in a slightly more. Uh, a slightly more mature and sophisticated way. Yeah. Um, I ended up thinking of uh, of Silver Linings Playbook, the David O. Russell film, which um, obviously a, a very well-received film, but also one that I think is underrated in certain corners, um, partially because I think the it got a kind of bad rap from certain critics who, were, who suggested uh, that the movie was implying... Uh, I'm sorry for this detour into an entirely different movie, but I, <laughs> I, I, do, I do think it's relevant. Um, <laughs> The implication uh, in a lot of reviews was that the movie was was suggesting that uh, that Bradley Cooper's character had his mental health issues solved by love or something. That true mm-hmm. love can, can cure you of uh, of whatever ails you, and that always felt like a gross simplification of what the movie is about, which is people, uh, which I think was always about somebody who who finds a reason to take his mental health issues seriously. Um, yeah. And I look at that, which I think is very, very moving. And then I look at this film and uh, this movie kind of does actually imply that in this case, tough love can can solve your issues. Um, but I he think... needs it so bad. He needs it so <laughs> bad. He really does. I did laugh at a few of the the few of the ways that people in his life were just like, there's just like a scene where his mother just shuts the door in his face. <laughs> he needs uh, it. He really does. He does need it. But I just... <laughs> The movie still makes it look kind of easy, though. It makes it look like here's yeah. a guy who is who is a fuck up and kind of gen- genuinely fucked up. And the movie just says, so long as you find these, uh, you have these right the right role models in your life, they'll like steer you in the right direction. And uh, that that's simpler than Davison himself, I think. Davison has in in his few years of being a, a public persona and being being a comedian, I think has made his own his own grappling with mental illness more complicated than this movie does. And yes, I, I think that that is another thing. I think that at the center of it, the thing about this movie that I felt like wasn't successful and that ended up having a kind of strange mix of tones, I think is that it didn't fully commit either way. You know, it is riding the line between comedy and drama, which is fine. Lots of dramedies are out there. And like you said, it flirts with these mental illness issues. But at the same time, you know, 
the character, there are some very like kind of broad, outrageous comedy touches to it. You know, like there's a scene where Davidson's character offers to give a just a random kid he sees at the park a, a tattoo. And mm-hmm. that's a very kind of broad, juvenile joke. And mm-hmm. then, you know, and so it doesn't really go either way with either of those things and instead just kind of like hangs out there in the middle. And I don't and I don't feel that that maybe it's a realistic place to be, but I don't think it's an especially funny place to be. Yeah. I mean, this definitely is not, this is, is by no stretch of the imagination is this Apatow's funniest movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I laughed through some of it, honestly. And maybe I, maybe I'm a Davidson fan and didn't really realize it. Um. <laughs> uh, well, I think I'm, I, this movie fully converted me to Bill Burr. He was great on an episode <laughs> of the Mandalorian, but he made me laugh more, uh, more than any other character in the movie. I really liked Bill Burr in this. Got it. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately what, for me, why this doesn't work ultimately, and, and I, I, I liked this movie more than you do, I guarantee that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I think this has, uh, I, th- I think I appreciate it a little bit more than you did. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say that what, uh, I think what hampered it in the end is that it becomes, in some respects, a lot of the film feels like Apato is uh, teeting the comic energy of the film to Davidson. It feels very catered to Davidson's persona and to and to his particular shtick. But at a certain point, it really heavily becomes a Judd Apatow film. And, yes, um, yes. I, I do think that's where its downfall is. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with Apatow always insisting that his characters go through this self-improvement, almost like a self-improvement seminar at a certain point. There's something... A little, a little, a little conservative about that particular aspect of his filmography. I mean, it's it's there in every single one of his features, with the exception of Funny People, which is the mm-hmm. one that says the one that ha- that is daring enough to suggest that sometimes uh, people don't change, people don't grow up, <laughs> uh, and uses its extended runtime to explore that. I think um, this is one though where uh, I felt at a certain point that it was almost like the movie was staging an intervention on uh on scott's behalf and uh apato just sort of grabbed, took the wheel and at this point it just became another one of his films about 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 a about a man child being uh being inched towards maturity slowly but surely by a good-hearted group of people um also can we can we talk about the fact that this movie i i agree that this movie is longer than it needs to be and part of that is that Apato has created a major character for his daughter, Maud Apato, and yeah. uh, I don't know if that character necessarily adds a ton to the <laughs> to, to the architecture of the film. One might say, I think you could probably remove her from this movie and with like like if somebody had gone through and just cut her scenes entirely, uh, I'm not sure the movie would would you would even necessarily notice. Okay, well, I'm going to disagree with that because mm. I feel like having the, his sister there as a counterpoint. You know, she was younger when their father died, but still, you know, she was impacted by this too. And so was their mom. And they, not only are they going on with their lives, they're supporting his life. And he just refuses to acknowledge or even, let alone appreciate all the care that all these people are putting into maintaining him and they have their own pain to deal with too, and he doesn't acknowledge that at all. And I found that very frustrating. Yeah, I guess she's sort of. I mean, they have a. There's a scene early on where she basically says, "I need to be able to go off to college and not worry about you." And he like essentially mm-hmm. refuses to give her that. He's like, "Yeah, well, you should worry." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and you know, and and 
maybe she had maybe she deals with depression and suicidal ideation too but he never even bothers to ask yeah so let's move on let's talk about another movie that uh you can watch at home right now um and is another film with some real life roots and another film uh to some extent about mental illness um and, and that a difficult sh- person <laughs> and a difficult person yes yeah. actually there's there are several very difficult people in this movie i would say <laughs> yes for sure <laughs> yeah uh and the film is josephine decker's shirley and now uh shirley is uh shirley is not a biopic should say that up front no, uh, a lot of kind of de- it it takes some basic details from Shirley Jackson's life and kind of uh, chronologically kind of shakes them all up and lays them all out next to each other, and then it takes out certain other elements of her life. It's definitely a collage more than it is a, a biopic. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Shirley Jackson uh, was a a famous um, horror and thriller writer. Um, she uh, probably her her most uh, famous piece of work is probably The Lottery, uh, a, a very a very well read short story. Um, she also wrote uh, The Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. We have always lived in the castle. That's right. And uh, this movie sort of fashions this this kind of uh, this kind of uh, psychodrama around mm-hmm. her her life and around a, a kind of uh, a, a loose approximation of her life because uh, I, again there there are lots of biographical details that are not in this film there are lots of things that have been lots of liberties have been taken I believe she had children in real life yeah and... yeah yeah all throughout her writing career she was raising kids at the same time right and and the the movie jettisons that entire aspect. She she, is, she has no children in this film. I would say it does it for very purposeful reasons as well. Yeah, uh, for dramatic reasons. Yeah, um, and, and thematic ones too, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the film is set sometime in the early 1950s. It's implied that uh, the lottery has just come out. And so when the film starts, it's kind of told through the eyes of this woman. Her name is Rose. She's a young newlywed who is coming to Bennington, Vermont with her husband, Fred, who's played by Logan Lerman. And Fred is hoping to get a teaching position at Bennington College, uh, which is an all-girls school, which does factor into, I think, thematically the film. Um, And so when they arrive, they're going to stay with Stanley Hyman, who's Michael Stuhlbarg, and he's a professor at Bennington, and he's married to Shirley Jackson, played by Elizabeth Moss. And when Rose and Fred show up at their house, they're having this big bohemian party, you know. It's sort of the satiricon where everyone's wearing flower crowns, <laughs> and you know, and Shirley's holding court in the middle of the party, and her and Stanley are sort of trading bon mots and. Uh, and, and it seems to be like a cool, happy environment. But as soon as the guest leaves, they realize that this is more of a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf situation. Than <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, a heavy, heavy dose of who's uh, of, of who's afraid yes, of Virginia Woolf. In this. Yes, that is, yeah. it's a big influence on this movie. And, uh, you know, Shirley and Stanley, um, they have uh, what they call an arrangement where Stanley basically has affairs with students and Shirley, he just tells Shirley about it. And Shirley, when they get there, is deep in uh, a, a depression which, you know, a, a depression kind of naturally comes with a writer's block. She hasn't been working much and she has trouble even getting out of bed in the morning. And 
you know, she she's kind of a mean person. When she first meets Rose, she resents having this other woman in the house and tells her I'm a witch, you know, and tries basically everything to push Rose away. But Rose is kind of fascinated by her at the same time. And over time, they grow to develop this relationship that I think kind of pushes both of them to the darker edges of their psyches. And um, you could say that it, what Shirley's doing is kind of manipulative. She's kind of using this young woman and kind of fucking this young woman up to fuel her own writing, which comes from a very dark place. And I found the sort of interplaying of their personal relationship and uh, Shirley's creative process to be very interesting, which is very typical of Josephine Decker. Her last film was Madeline's Madeline, which was also a film about uh, a younger woman and an older woman kind of caught in this creative folly ado. For sure, yeah. I actually thought that that film was a little bit too far up its own ass, one would say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I thought that that was a movie that by the end of that film, I basically understood. Uh, what I understood by the end of that film was that Decker had some complicated ideas about her own creative process. Sure. Um, this film, I think, is a little bit more sophisticated in terms of what it's doing, I think. Uh, yeah, adding adding the element of it being, you know, true to life story kind of. It's hard to go too far up your own ass when you're telling yeah. <laughs> when you're telling someone else's story when you can't really put yourself in the other character because it's a real person. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think it creates a certain distance that's that's valuable mm-hmm. in this case. Um, Moss is great. I mean, I, I I'm to the point where like I feel like she's I, always great. <laughs> she's always great. She's been great for the last probably five years at least. Uh, I mean, that's not even factoring in her time on Mad Men, but uh, I feel like every time she shows up in something, if rather the role is big or small, she's, she's real, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a a particularly impressive in this case, because I think she's playing a character who, as the movie conceives her is sometimes a very larger than life character, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, And and it's her writing, you know, Uh, there's one point where Rose goes into town and Shirley's told her nobody in town likes me. And Rose doesn't really believe it, but then she goes to run some errands and they're like, you're from that house with the witch on the hill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, there's no easy way to make writing compelling on screen. I mean, sure. uh, I feel like uh, it's a problem that nobody has entirely cracked. We often just see characters sitting and stewing at, at a typewriter or something. Um, it's it, 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 it's a problem that's ne- I don't think that's ever been solved by cinema is how to make that particular artistic endeavor interesting to watch or cinematic mm-hmm. in any way. But I think this film is at least smartly acknowledges that uh, what it needs to do is kind of show us the creative impetus in her relationships with other people. Right, yeah, um, it's through the uh, the medium of other people. I think this film does a better job than most making yeah. writing look interesting because it does concentrate on um, all the elements that go into the stew of writing rather than the actual act in front of sitting down in front of the typewriter. Because, I mean, I'm sure you'd agree with this, you know, like you don't just, you don't just even if you're writing a film review, you don't just watch a movie and sit down and type out and then this happened and then this happened. You have to think about it, right? And 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 and, and it shows the thought process. And there are times when uh, Decker will, surely will have these kind of bouts of inspiration and um, Decker kind of films them as like, not quite hallucinations, but almost like uh, dreams. I mean, most of writing is not writing. Right, yeah, totally. <laughs> I firmly believe that. Yeah, as a writer, you spend a lot of time just not actually putting words on paper. Uh, and I think this film understands that in some ways. Um, I really, one thing I appreciate about it is that it is, 
It's actually enormously sympathetic to Shirley Jackson as somebody, as a woman kind of stuck in a, uh, in a lousy an Im- time period. One an impossible say. situation. There's no way for her to win. Right. Yeah. She can um, either, she can either be a compliant good wife and let her soul die, or she can be a bitch who everyone hates. Like that's kind of her choices. Right. <laughs> and so, so she decides I, to be a bitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think the movie is enormously sympathetic to her, but at the same time, uh, it also acknowledges that she's, kind of a monster in her own way you know uh, in her own way and, and i we mentioned who's afraid of virginia wolf earlier something that i found very interesting about this movie is that like even that isn't necessarily explain everything about shirley and her husband's relationship there's more to it than that like they have this this um very twisted kind of uh conspiratorial thing yeah, where yeah. they're they're act the like whether it's conscious or subconscious they're working together to fuck with these people who are staying in their house yeah and it almost implies in a very dark way that these people these people who come to their house end up being it's like they're able to take their issues that they have with each other and just direct them into the process of terrorizing this young couple you know? yeah and 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 if it and if it sparks an idea for Shirley's writing, all the better. Yeah. There's a, there's an early scene where he basically is like, I need you to come to dinner. And uh, because Shirley will spend uh, entire days sometimes in bed, she will not leave her room. And he says, we have we have guests. I need you to come to, to dinner. But I didn't say you have to behave. Yes. And uh, the dinner table becomes this um, almost this theater for them. And this, I think co-conspirator is the right word for it because they um, they often will use this, they'll like, it's almost this performance for themselves where uh, they're, sometimes they're fighting, but oftentimes they're kind of picking on these two in a way. There's a scene where, where he just completely, he just witheringly tears down Logan Lerman's character um, for uh, for his paper he's written, knowing well, fully well that this character uh idealizes him and respects his opinion and he basically just go he goes beat through beat why it's a derivative piece of work basically Mm -hmm. and how Uh, he has no real talent and his thoughts are all someone else's thoughts and he's just basically nothing yeah yeah very withering nothing any writer wants to hear no definitely not so it's a very caustic film in some ways um but I think I think particularly the performances are are really strong, and I think the movie is after something. You talked earlier about the idea that uh, that Rose and Shirley sort of develop this interesting this interesting relationship with her staying there, and I think it's uh, it's to the movie's credit that that relationship is uh, presented as one of uh, to some degree of kindred spirits finding each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. But in, but in another in another sense, it is definitely one. Uh, uh, that it is an antagonistic relationship as well. Yeah, they're kind of two. They're kind of two sides of a coin, you know. And and when I was talking about like uh, Rose represents the choice of going along with what a woman is supposed to do in the 1950s, and Shirley mm-hmm. represents not going along with that choice. But there are certain things that bind them, and uh, it, it, you're right that they say they're kindred spirits in a way, and. That gets to another theme that I think Decker is kind of trying to get at uh, uh, Jackson's writing as a horror writer and the idea of like women and horror and uh, just like this morbid fascination with death that kind of um, unites them that I think is something like, you know, when you look at like true crime, the vast majority of people that watch murder documentaries are women, you know, and there's Mm -hmm. just something about like the this movie touches on something 
in this way that I would almost call like catonic, like it's almost like kind of like laying down in a grave and, and there, there's, there's a scene where Rose literally rolls around in the mud and she's supposed to be kind of thinking about oh, what it would be like to be dead and all this stuff and there's sort of this like subterranean morbid fascination with like the inherent danger of just kind of existing in this time period as a woman that they can you know you can either smile and pretend it's not there or you can really like sink your fingers deep into it and and they choose to sink their fingers deep into it surely kind of leads Rose to that. And that ultimately helps Rose realize like what she really wants out of life. I think you've hit on something there too, which is, I think that Decker is, uh, Decker is, it, it may, may be saying in, in some respects that to be a woman in America is kind of a, a never ending horror story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somebody like Jackson has an enormous amount of material to draw on in a sense. Yeah, and the story she's writing is about, uh, you know, a co-ed who disappears, which is a very, you know, common but scary story. Whatever else this movie has going for it, it has a description. I feel like it it contains a a description uh, of my particular taste in movies, (laughs) which (laughs) is very early into the film, Rose says to to Shirley that she read her most recent story, which I I think is implied to be the lottery, Mm -hmm. and, and says to her, it made me feel thrillingly horrible. And uh, I what... love thrillingly horrible movies too. <laughs> yeah. What more could could you ask of a film that it makes you feel thrillingly horrible? <laughs> okay, so both of those movies are available now. You can watch The King of Staten Island from home, although it will cost you twenty dollars because <laughs> you have to purchase it at this time. So, um, well, you, if I'll... you like Pete Davidson, it's worth it. I think you know. I think you so. Said it, you said it won you over to Pete Davidson, so it did kind of. And and honestly, I do think that uh, if. Again, if we were if we were if we were living in a time in which this was in theaters, you would probably pay. If if you and one other person went, you might pay that money anyway. You might pay. Oh, more than so. that, probably. <laughs> yeah, more than that. Um, but anyway, uh, the King Staten Island is available to watch from home today, as is Shirley. So both of those are available. Check them out if you'd like. Shirley is on Hulu, actually. So you don't. Oh. Uh, if you have Hulu, you don't have to pay anything. That's right. That's right. Cheap. And honestly, it's a better film. So maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want our opinion, I think that's the one you watch. But uh, that's uh, it's your life. So <laughs> uh, we would like to close the show, though, by uh, giving by providing a couple other recommendations. June, like we said earlier, June is over um, and we will soon be looking at a whole new slate of films in July uh, available to watch from home. But in the meantime, there are some films that we think uh, our listeners might like. Um, or uh, that we think are worthwhile. So, uh, Katie, what would you recommend that people watch this month? Uh, I actually want to recommend a film that got a bit of a bump because it uh, its release turned out to be very timely. It's called Miss Juneteenth, and it was released uh, last week on Friday on the 19th, which is also Juneteenth. It's a new director. Her name is uh, Channing Godfrey Peoples. So this is another film that was supposed to play at South by Southwest, and it ended up winning what was called the Lone Star Award for Texas filmmaking. And I think that is right on for this film because it really specifically evokes um, Southern life and specifically Southern black life in Texas in this way that's very poetic and very well drawn. And it also features a great lead performance from Nicole Bahari. Forgive me if that's not how her name is pronounced. Uh, She plays a woman named Turquoise who's a single mom who used to be a beauty queen and now she's pressuring her daughter to join the same pageant that she won when she was young which is called Miss Juneteenth and her daughter doesn't really want to enter the pageant and so it's just a good mother-daughter story as well as a great slice of life so that one's on VOD now 
I am going to recommend a film called A White White Day. Now, this is an Icelandic film that played at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Um, it is directed by a filmmaker named uh, Helner Palmason, uh, whose work I was entirely unfamiliar with until I saw this film. So the film is a drama about a, uh, a, a kind of a, a retired police officer who uh, loses his wife. Um, his wife dies in a, uh, in a car accident that is uh, depicted in the opening scene. And... Uh, he basically spends a lot of the movie grappling with that in a one one could say a kind of indirect way, and uh, I won't say too much about the plot. I, I don't think this is a film that leans too heavily on its plot in general, um, and to even even to describe it that way implies something a little bit more conventional than what you end up getting with it. Uh, it's a movie that suggests that um, that this particular character, uh, who, who is obviously a widower, uh, is finding kind of. Um, find indirect ways to express his emotions about this thing that's happened. And the movie, in a sense, is kind of indirect. And uh, in, instead of, we don't necessarily, I mean, it takes a while to even learn, to even learn the information I've even provided. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's an er, a brilliant early sequence in the film where we see, we basically see this building that we learn is a house that the character is, uh, is rehabbing. And we see it over a series of several seasons. And it's just a series of static, static distant shots of the property as the seasons change. And at that point, we haven't even met the character. We haven't met any of the characters. So the film is constantly finding ways to kind of um, to kind of misdirect itself in a way. Um, but it but it builds uh, in, in a very real way to to um, to a pretty powerful punctuation. I was completely. Uh, the the ending of the film snuck up uh, snuck up on me a lot. I, I think it's a film that you have to um, requires a little bit of patience, but it's doing something interesting formally every few minutes. And it was the uh, it was Iceland's submission for last year's uh, foreign language Oscar. You know, every every country essentially submits one film every year, and then and then they whittle that down to five for the nominees. This film did not make the cut, but there, I think there's a good case to be made that it should have. Okay, so if you're interested in the film, you can, uh, if you go to the Film Movement website, uh, you can find it, a list of theaters. You essentially just go to the website of a theater, maybe your local one, if you'd like to support them, and you can stream it directly through the website. Great, thanks, Alex. And just so you all know, we'll be off for the next three weeks here at Film Club, but we've given you plenty to watch in the meantime. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. We'll actually be off the next three weeks, but we'll be back on July 17th with a new episode. Thanks, folks. Bye.